Officer Navarro's sister, Julia, is increasingly hearing a spooky call that has her attempting to follow it out onto the ice and into the sea. In this episode, she can no longer resist the urge and leaves the treatment facility to drown herself in the Arctic Ocean. This sends Navarro spiraling into violence and ultimately fatalism, worrying that it's only a matter of time before she, too, is forced to hear the same call. Meanwhile, Chief Danvers is facing down her own demons, with the missing men and women under eerie circumstances and the pressures of the case driving her to drink and engage in self-destructive behavior. Both women are united once again with a hot tip by the local fisherman that a strange man wearing a pink parka is seen at the abandoned gold dredges on the outskirts of Venice. Investigating the dredges, Danvers finds Otis Heiss, a man who Peter had previously identified as suffering similar injuries uh, over 20 years ago as the men from the Salal station, including burnt corneas, ruptured eardrums, and self-inflicted bite wounds. His mind seems to be gone as all he can do is rave about the night country. Navarro, however, finds disturbing visions of her dead sister, and Danvers finds her by the end of the episode in a catatonic state with blood trickling from her ears. From the dusty mesa, her looming shadow Welcome to The World We Deserve, the officially unofficial podcast for True Detective on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking season four, episode four, uh, Night Country, part four. Aaron, you had a couple days to sit with the episode. Hopefully your brain is a little less fogged. I know I'm feeling a little bit better. Uh, what do you think of this episode? It is a good episode, and much like some of the middle episodes of season one of True Detective, uh, there's there's not a lot of movement on the case. We got far more information about the the detectives investigating um, than we did about new, truly new information. But also, all that stuff kind of ties back together too. Like I think you're supposed to understand that, you know, some of the creepy stuff going on personally is probably going to connect back to the case. Um, I continue to be impressed with like uh, the, the, the characters and the acting. I was particularly impressed that they made me feel sorry for Hank. I was like starting off very much Nelson from the Simpsons. Ha ha out of all of his bullshit. But by the time he's staring catatonic at his camouflaged bed sheets covered in rose petals, I'm like, oh, man, he really... You really, you really invested. You invest a lot. And in fact, like on subsequent watches, I got that. He, I don't think he's seen this woman. I don't think he's seen. He's like he's getting cat. He's getting catfish sight un, unseen. No photos. No photos. Why else would he like have this kind of like expectant smile when the stewardess is looking like she's going to get off? Like he. Like, like he's like that. That might be her. And I he don't needs think glasses. He knows. And she's also Maybe. blonde. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. a good point. That's a good point. Uh, so I, I just like I think it's a it's a pretty good episode when uh, they can they can make you feel sympathetic to a, just a shit person like Hank. Uh, what do you think? Boy, that's an extra level of desperation, huh? I mean, it speaks to kind of the one of the big themes of this season is loneliness, and they, they really yeah. came through this episode. Just everybody. Being, being lonely, you know. Uh, that's what Navarro says. He, she asks uh, Kavik, you know, how, why are you alone? Talking about life. Uh, he claims that he's not because I, I think he thinks he's got her. Um, 
Mm. Yeah, I, I, I like this episode. I One of the things I've appreciated as of this episode is the way they've been telling this story is remarkably subtle in a lot of areas. Like, I think of the stuff we think we know and and, and the, the more we see the more the stuff we think we know turns out to be true which means they've dropped really successful little hints along the way like i think yeah. this episode does a lo- goes a long way to say that liz has a drinking problem or had a drinking problem mm. tough to say um it, there are a couple little details we can talk about maybe when we get to her um there are a lot of things that we suspected, like Hank was getting catfished. We just kind of, you just kind of feel that. It's nothing that they explicitly spell out, but we kind of picked it up as we went, and it turned out to be true. That that uh, fight with the hillbillies last episode, that was caused by a shooting. It, like uh, all, all the little crumbs they're putting down, we're absolutely sniffing out. And I feel like that's a really elegant way to tell this story. Yeah. Um, I agree. So they're, they're doing a really good job there. Like, like the show has not come out and said, "Oh, Liz lost Pete, or not, not Pete, um, Jake, and and uh, Connors, Connors, Connolly, what Holden? Oh, yeah. I was close. Connolly, <laughs> yeah, she's like not lost Connolly, right? Uh, <laughs> that they've lost that they, she lost this to a drunk driving accident, but it's never it's never come out and said. And then mm-hmm. you're supposed to, but if but if you haven't gotten that from the storytelling, then you know, alarm bells not be, might not be flashing about her drinking and driving like an asshole. Um, right. You know, and but but like also Connolly's reaction to like, did you drive? Like, you know, you're supposed to understand that this is pretty transgressive behavior. Stacy Chalmers, Stacy fucking Chalmers, probably only ex- exists to show that she has a mm-hmm. special antipathy towards people with these. So it's like it's 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 giving insights into her emotional state, uh, yeah. and it's like the epitome of show uh, don't tell storytelling. Um, I think so. Yeah. And as she spirals further down, she sort of leans into those behaviors. Um, yeah. They're unhealthy. And, and yeah, I, I think it's been told really well. Um, that theme of loneliness really comes across in this episode, you know, yeah. overtly, but also it, there, there's a character who says the line, but there's also just a lot of loneliness happening on screen. I mean, Hank, desperate. I mean, like I said, how desperate do you have to be to marry someone sight unseen from another yeah. country? You've never met them. You've just chatted on the phone. He's desperately lonely. Uh, so is Liz. And and like that scene with the, the turkey that she dumps in the trash can, that's desperate loneliness is what that is. Yeah. And even Pete, who is married and has a, a beautiful young family, like it's uh-huh. hard to show a lonelier scene than him and his wife laying in the bed with their yeah. backs to each other and about 17 feet between them. I don't <laughs> know how you do that in a queen size bed. The, but, the only uh, way you can do it more intensely is the way Better Call Saul did it, which is you actually do a split screen uh, mm. and then they end up in the same bed with a split screen. Dividing the bed. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, it is. Uh, it, I, I, I was going to make that joke for the the Hank thing you meant that you mentioned that it's it's hard to achieve the level of sweaty desperation in the freezing cold night country, but yet uh-huh. Hank manages to do it. He is he's he's yeah. got that. And you're you're right. Liz dumping the chicken, or I'm sorry, the turkey had the. A similar kind of feel. So there's, yeah, a lot of uh, our detectives feel like their backs are against a wall for very different reasons. You know, mm-hmm. Navarro feels like she is succumbing to this family curse. 
Liz feels like her life is spiraling out of control. There's a referendum on her being a police person. Um, kind of the things she's struggling with are starting to really sandbag her and uh, all in the backdrop of this, uh, this, this, this crazy mystery they're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed this episode. I will say before we go much further, because it's been kind of like we've gotten conflicting reports, it's confirmed. It's confirmed now that they are not skipping a week for the Super Bowl. However, much like they did for The Last of Us last season, they are going to release on Max online uh, the new episode on Friday night. It's virtual Sunday night at HBO. They're releasing that uh, on Max, uh, and then HBO will be airing it Sunday at its regular time. I imagine most true fans of True Detective are going to be watching Friday night. Unfortunately, because of some travel issues with Jim and some previous commitments that I've made, this completely fucks up our instant take schedule. Um, we are not going to be able to do instant take on Friday night. Uh, and maybe we could do it on Sunday, but I, at that point, I feel like it's almost pointless. You know, most people who have watched it are going to go ahead and watch it. So in, instead, we'll just have our, our full podcast out on Tuesday. Uh, mm-hmm. I apologize for that because I do like to do this stuff with the club members, and I do. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking it over with y'all it's just uh i i I had a i had a pre-existing commitment before i found all this stuff out and jim had some travel anyway so if it was just one of us gone we probably would figure out a way to make it happen but when you got both both jim and i gone what the hell is is even a bald move podcast you know yeah Uh, bring in uh, two guests yeah Yeah. just yeah (laughs) like you do hey if we got away with it uh, I hate to tell you, we we it'd be hard to get us back. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> if we could if we could just uh, put put some cardboard cutouts out here and be done with it, uh, mm-hmm. that'd be tempting. But yeah, I just want to just reiterate again: uh, we will not be having instant take this week. We will have an instant take for the finale. And I've heard through the grapevine that these last two episodes are what you'd call bangers. Like they have really. To be. Because if they're not, the story won't be told. True, true. <laughs> you know, um, but I mean, I think you'd wrap up the mystery in a satisfying way. But like, I've I've heard them been described as like they kind of like bring the whole season together and are pretty brav- bravara, bravara. Um, okay. T- yeah, they're they're the the type of episodes you want to you want to stand up and clap at the end. So I'm excited for that. I'm pretty excited to see how it all comes together. Yeah, me too. All right, where do you want to start? We've been leading with the mystery, but since the mystery kind of took a back seat, I thought we would kind of uh, follow along with the true detectives and kind of back our way into it. Uh, and let's start with Evangeline, because the big big news here is the stuff with her sister. Um, this Is this the most depressing piece of Christmas content that you've consumed? Is this going to be a yeah uh, Jones family Christmas staple? You just can't wait to rewatch this. You know, maybe mm-hmm. on Christmas Eve. Yeah, maybe maybe a whole Christmas season. I mean, why not? Uh, no, this this is yeah incredibly depressing. I mean, it's hard for me to think of a Christmas themed anything where somebody's sister takes their own life. Yeah, Paul Giamatti's All is Bright is pretty bleak in pieces, but Mm -hmm. not your sister drowns herself because of a family curse bleak. (laughs) 
but that makes it worse right that like you've got you know this uh -huh. is the time uh you know it's, it's a time of darkness but you got the artificial light so that uh you, you kind of perk things up and you're supposed to be spending time with family and i mean i think that that really hammers the isolation home the fact yeah. that like you know culturally this is supposed to be a time to come together with your family and and love and understanding empathy and for these these ladies it's it's not coming for nobody uh, i mean the, the thing that they're doing between sort of the the culture of uh the indigenous peoples and the culture that uh i guess the latecomers to alaska are bringing is really mm -hmm. evident in those scenes because you've got a whole bunch of people here who are not involved in that culture and they are experiencing extreme loneliness and then you've got this kind of beautiful scene making bread or whatever they're making uh biscuits in the kitchen with these three native women so yeah they're, they're definitely like reinforcing that theme the, the connection to that spirituality connection to each other as opposed to the loneliness and isolation you feel when you don't think there's god you don't uh have anybody else in your life yeah it's pretty depressing yeah and it made me think of um because there's this on the official podcast they had um a native gentleman that was talking about the legends and and the religion of the uh, Anupiak or Anupik, mm -hmm. I think, is how it seems like the the the, the natives are pronouncing it. Um, and he he points out that like you know that these these beliefs are like embedded in the people's DNA, and it's kind of like been tried to beat out of them by uh, the 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 Europeans coming to you know spread Christianity and whatnot. And it's like I you know obviously I don't know about the whole DNA of it. But I do, you know, it's like as I've learned more about religion across the globe, it seems like it's there to kind of like help people. And like it's like very particular to a, a, a place. You know, you might if you if you live down in the mountains, you might worship mountains. And if you live in a cold environment, you might have a different relationship than you do in a hot environment. And it seems like, you know, Christianity is something that spawns from the Middle East. It's like just doesn't fit in places that are like cold and dark for like half the year like the the hmm. mythology has nothing to say about uh like what if the world is swallowed in darkness for six months out of the year it's it's not suited for its task um hmm. i i i thought that it's, it's it, that, that i felt like they were kind of getting at that in this episode um but julie yeah she's having um you know, Navarro's got a lot. She's clearly agitated by the idea that Connolly might come and like take this whole thing away from them. And by the way, the women are behaving in this episode. I could totally see the larger jurisdiction, more experienced uh, male cop coming in and be like, "This is insane, taking you guys off the case." Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm exerting my jurisdiction. Um, but also that Julia's just be coming to a head, and um, I was a little surprised that. You know, Liz shows up to kind of like rescue her at the beginning of the episode, and before the episode even has half it, it, its runtime half expend, expanded, she's going to find a way to kill herself. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, not even the lighthouse could save her uh, at this point. Yeah, and that's um, you know, she's kind of the counterpoint to all of this uh the stuff that I just talked about with yeah. the show depicting, you know, the, the indigenous people's culture as something that is, you know, communal and reinforcing. She's experiencing a very different kind of thing. And I don't mm -hmm. know why that is. Um, 
I don't know if they're trying to say, yes, this person is just mentally ill or that it runs in their family and they all are, or if they're trying to do something to show kind of both sides of that. Like it's, it's a blessing and a curse. I thought it's interesting because the official podcast, it seems like the, and who knows, because again, showrunners are storytellers uh, and they get paid to do it, which is another way of saying they're professional liars. So she could be saying stuff in these interviews that are deliberately misleading. But one thing I thought was interesting is she called back to what Rose said about you mustn't confuse the supernatural and the uh, afterlife for mental illness. Mm -hmm. And Issa Lopez called that back to specifically talk about uh, Julia. And it feels to me like she is putting her thumb on the scale of rationality and be like, you know, she thinks she's seeing this. She thinks she's experiencing. She's think, um, But she didn't use that language when it comes to Navarro. So is it possible that like, yeah, Julia is mentally ill, but Navarro's got the gift like Rose does. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. And she I doesn't use the- that language with with Rose either, right? I mean... Right, right. So... Yeah, I, I I do feel like they're trying to say something where this is something to be respected and feared. Because yeah. um, that whole the thing that rings uh, in my head when I look at this stuff is what Rose says about the three types of uh, spirits: mm-hmm. the ones that want to tell you something, the ones that want to uh, I see you again, and the ones that want to take you. I forget exactly what they are, but. Mm-hmm. It feels like there are different experiences for different people in regard to this spirituality stuff. And I don't know if that's her saying, yes, there are literally three. We've we've cataloged them and we know this. and Or, or if she's saying like people experience, have a different relationship with the spirituality of this place and this culture. And it can be healthy or unhealthy just depending on your viewpoint. I was about to say something similar that like, you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, like a therapist or a psychologist would say the difference between like a quirk or just the myriad of things that makes you you and different and distinct from the other people. And uh, like a pathology is whether it's interfering in your normal relationships and your ability to live as a human being. Sure. So like Rose gets like all these, you know, she's like the spooky spiritual lady. Um, but it doesn't seem like she's particularly crippled by it. You know, she has a pretty high regard, able to make friendships and da da da. Whereas Julie, it seems like it's causing her to harm herself and eventually take her own life. But I don't know how to square that with the three types of ghosts, because if I was sitting there with Rose, like how does Rose experience a ghost that's trying to take her? Yeah. Because that just seems like that's, that's, it that's pathologic. mugs it. Until it's yeah, until it gives she's up. Like, <laughs> she's like, get the fuck. Yeah, she, she, she like bang pots and like drive it uh-huh. off like a raccoon in your trash or like um, because, yeah, that would be a healthy way to deal with it. But like if if that's something that she's like, oh, it's like, oh, the knights were the ones that want to take me come. They're hard and I drink. It's like, well, now we're back in the like mental illness um, or that being pathologic. So I mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Um but it's interesting to hear how Le- the, uh, Issa Lopez is talking about it. Uh-huh. Um, I want to talk, and if, if you have some more things to say about that, I, but uh, I want to springboard into the lighthouse proper. Okay. You're listening to The World We Deserve. We'll be right back.
We're back with more of The World We Deserve. Did the lighthouse fail to contain Julia and protect her? Or did the lighthouse, is there something more sinister here? Because I was, you know, when, um, you know, I just recently got that rewatch of True Detective season one. And the closest analog to the scene of Navarro showing up and blowing this place up is Russ interviewing the head Tuttle. I forget his name, but the the televangelist, you know. Mm -hmm. And the interview with him, you definitely get that, like, there is some incompetence here that's deliberate. Like, oh, they lost a whole bunch of records. Or, ah, you know, the the hurricanes, there were sketchy records. But you kind of got the feeling that, like, oh, there's something sinister here. I just got, like, maybe incompetence. Maybe, like, hey, we're not, like, a state research visit. We're not an institution. We're, like, a kind of like a quasi-religious community help center. We don't have the ability to keep people against their will. I didn't get any, mm-hmm. like, oh, this guy, you know, of course, he's just the guy doing the front desk at the graveyard shift. But I didn't get any, like, oh, there's something sinister here. It's more of, yeah. like, well, yeah, your sister signed in on her own accord. She can sign out. Uh, maybe you know I would say maybe should have done a better job of alerting her next to kin that you're releasing her maybe make mm-hmm. sure she has someone to pick her up but like I didn't see anything sinister there are you what's the psychosphere telling you about the lighthouse uh, I've I feel the same way about it as you do I think she just kind of left of her own accord and I mean if it's not a facility that is designed to contain people it might be she just walked out the front door and nobody even really knew. Like, That's, yeah, it, it, she's not in a mental ward at a hospital. She's not yeah. like this is not a facility with cages, you know. Um, she could have just walked right out. So I, I don't yeah. think there's any foul play here. I assume, but I'm open to being wrong about that as well. If we learn some more next episode, what do you think? Uh. Evangeline kind of like regards Julia as she's being inducted and she's kind of has this weird look in her face. And she says, you knew you were going to stay here, didn't you? Hmm. Did she, is, is that mean like, you know, you're finally scared enough by your own behavior that you want to be protected? Like what, what exactly? I, I, I watched that a couple of times. I, I don't quite understand what she was getting at. Yeah. Same here. Uh, I, I don't know what she means by that either. It's more. I, I, my 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 intuition says that it's like this is something between the sisters of like you you know when you walked out started stripping naked and like expose yourself to freezing cold temperatures it will kill you in minutes that like you were going to end up here and you probably needed to be here or, um, and it I seemed mean, like she I, was sincere about that until the corpse showed up under her bed which uh huh yeah yeah she didn't I, I don't think she had intentions to walk out into the water until. She realized that no matter what she even does, here, yeah, even here, it's going to follow doing, her. I'm finally doing the thing my sister said I have to do, and it's it's worse than ever. Mm-hmm. She didn't give yeah. it much time. <laughs> I mean, maybe, you know, let the drugs kick in or something first, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we get the orange roll out from underneath the bed. We got some interesting feedback about the symbolism of uh, oranges. Uh, I'll tease it in case people normally skip the feedback, but apparently there is uh, some association with uh, orange, especially in Canada and indigenous peoples. And, you know, 
Uh, there's this, uh, they call it Orange Orange Shirt Day, which is like um, a, a, a commemoration of the, what do you call those? The the schools that they would take native kids to, to essentially not make them native anymore. Oh. I forget what they call that, like the forced schooling or... Uh, there's a particular term of yeah. art for taking these kids into a school and like beating Christ into them and cutting their hair and not wearing, letting them wear their native garb and divorcing them from their native practices. And it just, yeah, it's like, a, it's a, it's a form of cultural genocide. The people remain, but the things that made them distinct from the colonizing culture have been erased. Yeah, there's a really good episode of Reservation Dogs that deals with yeah. one of those schools. Boarding, I think year. it's like boarding schools or something like that. That's that something missing yeah. for it. But yeah, uh, stay tuned to feedback for some really fascinating stuff about that. But otherwise, you've got also just you know the naked association with death that we've mm-hmm. gotten in cinema, uh, and also that necklace reappearing. Yeah, it's interesting to me. I I don't know exactly what they're doing with that because Navarro throws that away like two episodes yeah. ago. Yeah. And it could um, be a physical necklace that her mom dropped in her what patrol. No, no, it couldn't have been that she, there's no way her mom or did Navarro have that around and she just dropped it in the patrol car. I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, I assume, or I guess it could be just a vision. Like she throws that cross out but the cross isn't real yeah because nobody else is around when she does that so it could be her trying to reject the traditions that have mm-hmm. been foisted on them and you know showing her struggling to reconnect with her roots well and rejecting the, the affliction that both her sister and her mother had I mean she's the one sure. trying to keep it together for everybody right true uh, so Navarro is out with Pete. We'll get to this, uh, the mission they're on later, but she gets a call from the Coast Guard with some bad news. Um, and I thought, you know, again, with the, the theme of loneliness, she has a person here, uh, fellow member of the force, or, or I guess a force, uh, would probably be a sympathy, you know, someone who would show a sympathetic ear and she chooses to not tell him anything. You know, she got this devastating news and he's like, is everything okay? She's like, oh yeah, fine. Go home, be with your family. She's not fine. That's it. I I think it's the that thing. Go home and be with your family. It's December twenty fourth. It's Christmas yeah. Eve. Like she tells him this, and mm-hmm. how's he gonna go home to his family right. and have a nice Christmas Eve? But that's she's the kind of isolating. That's that, that's not that's not Christmas behavior. That's not that's not the spirit of Christmas. Is to keep those things yourself and suffer in silence and yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, and uh, she pays the price for it because she uh, tra- transmutes this fear. Well, she's sad. She's, she's got two negative emotions, sadness and fear, and uh, she does the prototypically masculine thing of converting that through emotional alchemy to anger. Mm-hmm. She knows what she can do with that, and first she goes and blows up the lighthouse people, um, and then she goes, she passes this uh, this wife beater, uh, the guy who beat the, the the blue king crab lady up, the one the missing fingers, and she finds him with his boys on Christmas Eve, and she just lights into them. And unfortunately, like I said, even even a even a well trained boxer of approximately the same size as three other dudes is going to have a hard time winning a street fight in those conditions, and 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 she doesn't do it either. She just gets the piss beat out of her. Yeah. Um. I feel like we got to talk about this in in conjunction with the scene with Kavik 
so that's why I was going to see if you had any like standalone takes. But yeah, she uh, and it's funny. It's like she doesn't go to Kavik for help. She breaks into his bar and starts like treating herself. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, he goes and, you know, meets her with a shotgun and finds out that she's been battered and starts immediately taking care of her. Which she could have um, gone home. She could have gone home yeah. to treat herself. I think this is this is her reaching out. It's yes. she, she expresses her emotions in really strange ways. And I think like Kavik earlier when he was with his dogs and, you know, telling this metaphor uh, about the dog who's got this soft interior. If you just get past the, you know, the biting and the yelping and, and barking and stuff. I, I really like this scene. I think this is one of the best blendings of physical and emotional pain I've seen in a long time. Um, the way that, you know, she's trying to be tough. She's like, ah, don't touch my finger. It hurts. And Kavik distracts her with this surprise. I I mean, I assume she thinks that he's proposing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Hey, let's get married, which is insane. Given what's happening right now. Uh, this is a terrible time to propose, but he's distracting her to set her finger back in place to heal her. And I, the way she reacts to that is so interesting to me because she screams because of the physical pain when he pulls her finger and then and then she keeps screaming she keeps saying fuck you fuck you fuck you and i think part of that is not because the hand hurts i think it's her heart hurts like she kind of got caught up in that moment like she's she says no don't like this is stupid don't do this when he's right. getting down on one knee and right. i think some of this is like she kind of wants that to happen and when he pulls that away and it's revealed for just a trick just a distraction mm-hmm. i think she's extra hurt by that and you know not for nothing she's also extremely hurting because of her sister at this moment so like and all also of that, the broken finger just got set there's exactly yeah, yeah there's the like three levels of the, the physical and emotional pain it's i think it's really well done i do too and i think i think you're I, that's a hundred percent correct analysis that as much as she would be the first person to do her navarro thing of like fuck you Kavik, we're not getting married what the hell does that even mean and you start to wonder, like, how much of her pushing him at arm's length is, like, uh, an attempt to protect him? Because it's like, well, if I'm yeah. inevitably going to succumb to the call of the ice, mm-hmm. why the hell would I take a nice guy like Kavik and, and wreck him like that, you know? And when she's sitting there asking, like, why are you alone? And, and yeah. like, in life. I mean, she's asking that of him because she wants to know why she's alone. It's, Do you? It's funny you interpreted that as, like, when he said, I'm not alone he's like i don't you thought do you think he means i have you i mean that's probably one person he has but it, he he seems like a guy who has friends that's what i'm saying he's I think a bartender that, for god's sake yeah, well yeah <laughs> but I, I got that too that like i i have a full life where i'm plugged into my community and i have friends that i ice fish with and i have my my family who's going to Disney my World dogs. because you know and i got yeah like i, I don't think that kavik feels like he's not wanting to be with navarro because he's desperate or because you know he's mm-hmm. afraid of being alone he wants because he loves her yeah um yeah how, how do those cheek piercings work in a fight i i was curious because i'm like jesus christ Ooh. is she does she square up and fight in a ring with those and i i i found a lot of pictures of her and her fighting career and it seems like she removes those 
But yeah. like, I can't even imagine. Like, I imagine there's some kind of stud or something. Does it get just like get punched into your your cheeks and your teeth? And I would think so. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> it's like it's like installing brass knuckles for your enemy. For the <laughs> like, other guy, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like here, come uh, punch these brass knuckles I put on my jaw. Yeah, you don't have to brass knuck up. I've got them. I, I got them pre-embedded into my cheeks. And he, she lost a tooth. Um, I did feel like they went either too far in her immediate, I got the fuck beat out of me makeup, or they didn't go far enough in her next morning, I got my face put together makeup. Because, man, eh, she, she went was to her cut, battered. Man. Yeah. I guess so. He, he I guess just, so. you know, put the, put the pad on, put the ice on. Yeah, yeah. Vaseline yeah. her face up, send her back out there. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think you're right. It was it was a little too extreme on both ends. She was both too beat up and too healed at the same time. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like you know just fully processing the death of her sister because like the things that her sister is saying, and I think she meant them. This is before she saw her dead mom in, in her room. But like, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow and I love you and we'll have Christmas together and like all these like, you know, promises and the fact that she was out there on the ice when she took the phone call being like, oh, yeah, I love my room. It's peaceful, quiet. This is multiple layers of betrayal and sadness and loss. Um Yeah, yeah. I, I do wonder, like, I, I wonder if next episode Connolly's going to put like try because like you got to think those guys that she attacked are going to probably call and press charges uh you know liz fucked up her car i think it that got damaged like and she's driving around drunk like i could see conley coming in with a head of steam being like and they're all excited that they've got this major break and he's like yeah well yoink i'm taking you guys off Mm -hmm. which is also a very true detective season one thing like that's you know uh russ got pulled off the case not for self-destructive behavior but for essentially pulling on too many tuttle threads but mm. it's a very true detective thing for the cheat to, to, to be pulled off the case because you're getting too close. Yeah. So Navarro shows up after this to talk to Liz and they both kind of comment on each other's beat up appearance because we'll be talking about Liz here in a minute and she's been uh, abusing herself. Uh, she realizes that she's lost the spiral stone, which we'll be talking about here in a bit. Um, and she finds the bear, you know, because Liz is like giving her this whole bunch of guff about the 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 spirit stuff isn't real and God's not real and it's only things in front of her face. And she's like, well, if that's all that's true, why do you hold on to this? And Liz angrily throws that shit out into the street theatrically. Um, mm-hmm. She reveals that her sister killed herself and that she's got this creeping dread that it's something that, you know, it's a curse that her family's going through and she... You know, she's the next door for the Grim Reaper to to take a step on or uh, to take the step up to. Um, yeah, and there's a I, I thought slightly awkward turn of the conversation to the Wheeler case. They're trying to give us more info on that, but it, this didn't feel like the right place to it do that. It did feel a little abrupt because you just had Liz screaming that nothing yeah outside of this world exists and then you saw a ghost and i know you saw a ghost tell me about your ghost yeah yeah I, it it didn't feel right in this scene but but maybe it does she's trying to a little more information was she trying to make the like i don't think liz was like you actually saw a ghost i think she's like you claim to saw a ghost and that means you know that this is like you just need to 
maybe unlike your sister where you fight it tooth and nail until the very end it's too late maybe you should go into lighthouse before you start actively trying to go out into the ice sure yeah but i uh, i agree i thought it felt a little there um i think a lot of the criticism of this season has been unfair and oh, yeah. simply would not be happening if this was called uh night country you know i, I was thinking like I wonder if people would, like imagine if like sharp objects the person came there and be hey, I want to do the shark object sharp objects well you know it's been a while since we've done True Detective how how do you feel about True Detective sharp objects mm-hmm. fucking great show but just by hanging True Detective on it it's going to invite comparisons to maybe better television certainly different types of television I don't think it's it's really suited. Uh, I I don't think it's done what HBO's want to do. Although I guess people are talking about it, and more and more people are watching it. But uh, I, I, I think did. That's a preamble to to say it's not perfect either. It's not perfect, <laughs> and there's yeah. a couple things I know. Like I don't buy the Coast Guard finds her sister's body in the fucking Arctic Ocean on Christmas Eve, an hour after she goes out onto the ice, mm-hmm. like, essentially, because it's the same fucking day. Yeah. That seemed like a crazy shortcut. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of ways you could arrive at that, but like that was a pretty big, that's a pretty big reach, pretty big ask. Yep, yeah, I'm with you. Um, so yeah, that's uh, one of the first few honest criticisms that I felt like I've landed on the show. Um, do you want to rewind the tape a little bit and go down the Liz Danvers path, or do you have some more stuff you want yeah. to talk about, Evangeline? I mean, the she where she ends up this episode. I don't know if she is an active part of this investigation anymore, or if she is going to be completely sidelined by whatever injuries, self inflicted or ghost inflicted, she has at the end of this episode. That's Sometimes my biggest question. That happens too. Like in season two, wasn't um, fuck? What was her um... Rachel McAdams? Rachel McAdams, but is Antigone or something? I forget oh, yeah, what her name her was. Name. Annie, yeah. it was Annie. Uh, the, I thought there was, didn't she like get kidnapped essentially in the like the last episode, or episode and a half? And it was it, I think it, so. It, so it's like it it's in the shows. It's in the show's DNA for one of the true detectives to be sidelined. Mm-hmm. Um, it happened to kind of Russ in a very small extent where he got you know stabbed and was incapacitated by the Yellow King before Marty came in there and. Uh, sure. I I guess Russ ends up saving himself, kind of, sorta, with Marty's help. But it, it can happen. I I wouldn't. I, like I said, I I think that Connolly's going to roll in there and try to take it all. I I think that that hit Liz and Navarro are going to have to work the rest of the case off the books. Hmm. Okay. And maybe they'll have a leg up with like the native population that they're you know um the the because that's that's kind of an un thus thus far somewhat untapped. Uh, resource on the show. Um, it seems like her and uh, Liz has an antagonistic relationship with that, but like maybe her and Navarro will solve it with the help of the native population, and Connolly's going to do more of just like retreat back to Anchorage. I I don't know. Um, I guess I just wonder what her mental state is. Is she is her head still in the investigation, or is her head in the spirit world? You know. I said in the description that she was catatonic. I don't know if that's true because she did respond yeah. to Liz. She looks um, over at her. Mm-hmm. It's just she's had a fucking experience. I want to know, like, I want to hear. God damn, I'm so pissed we don't have an instant take this week. I want to hear. <laughs> I want to hear what she says. Like, yeah, why are your deaf? ears bleeding? What is happened? She catatonic? Like, is she going to have to go to the hospital for a bit? Uh, 
yeah what what was your subjective experience of this you know whatever popped your ears and and whatnot Mm -hmm. i don't know i saw a boombox maybe she turned that up too loud true she had like doc brown's uh yeah just (laughs) back to the future mega speaker experience Mm -hmm. let's let's move to Liz, liz liz danvers um what do you make of the uh, th- this noise machine is so fucking prominent mm-hmm. i got to think that they're doing something with it like if, if is the implication of liz would shut this damn noise machine off that maybe the dead would start talking to her like like the reason that uh yeah. her son is running to Nav- navarro and being like tell mommy something because he tries to tell her and every time she he does she just turns the white noise machine up yeah, I so I was listening to the official cast and they were talking about the polar bear and how that is basically you know, the the spirit world come knocking on Liz's door, right. but she doesn't believe in it, she rejects it, and yeah, I think the white noise machine is is much like that. It's it's a representation of her blocking that out. Mm-hmm. It seems like she's just completely haunted by this Annie situation. I'm not exact, and, and I, I guess the you're you're supposed to make the connection between Annie and her daughter, and her worrying about something happening to her daughter, especially since she seems to be pat- walking the path of Annie and getting involved in mind protesting, and you know we see what happened the last time that happened. I think all that stuff is tracking, but she's just extremely haunted by her inability to solve these cases. And I think it comes to a head here. Um, with her finding Julia walking down the street half naked and putting the coat on her and saying, I'm, I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to protect you. And then her killing herself at the end, being yeah, unable to, to protect her. It. I think yeah. there have to be some emotional ramifications next episode. And you can see it kind of on her face when Evangeline tells her there's a big mix of emotions there. Right. One, oops, I just said the dead are gone and they're nothing Mm -hmm. but meat and they need to be recycled and turned into fertilizer. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) now she tells me her sister killed herself. Whoops, big foot in the mouth there. Um, Uh And then there's also that that realization that, oh, I told her I was going to protect her and I I was so focused on this other thing that I wasn't there to do that and I'm doing the same thing with my daughter. And like... There's so many layers to that reveal there that I think are just really well done. Yeah, if I wasn't drinking, maybe I would have caught into some of the signs, or I would yeah. have been because she she's very so. You should take care of your sister and all, but like maybe she should have backed off and spent some time with her family, spent some time, make sure that Navarro was okay. Yeah, definitely mm-hmm. some some guilt there. And I also really like the scene of her checking on her daughter and kind of brushing the hair out of her face. It shows that yeah as much as her daughter thinks this is something that she feels forced to do, that she does have some genuinely motherly feelings towards her. That's probably where all, like you mm-hmm. said, all the, she's taking that fear and transmuting it to anger it, at her daughter's tribal tattoos, at her daughter's protesting and being socially conscious, uh, even, yep. you know, uh, even, even sleeping with other children, I guess is, is something that could, uh, get, get a, get a native kid in trouble. Uh, that's the thing kids just you know we talked about this with the video that leah made in the first episode the kids just don't understand some of the consequences mm -hmm. that might arise from you know pretty radical actions honestly yeah why would they like the idea that they die is like such a foreign and they don't even they don't have the experience to to know things can go wrong 
Yeah, and they think that they're you know all their stuff has worked out because in all their short life it all has. So, and um, I say that to say if Liz just sat down with her and said, "Look, I'm sorry, I'm being a huge asshole here. I'm doing it to try and protect you because things can go badly mm-hmm. when you think they can't." She just wouldn't get it. You know, mm-hmm. it it wouldn't register as true to her. It would be something that she would probably still resent. So. There's a scene with uh, Connolly, who's coming to personally uh, oversee a routine body transport, which she questions him on. And uh, I got the implication that he, yeah, he's worried the case will be, you know, handled correctly, but he's kind of hoping that he can get some. Santa Claus needs some loving, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's he's hoping that uh, she'll be his Miss Claus. That's that's what I got. Yeah, I mean, he's obviously very lonely up here on Christmas Eve, sitting in his hotel room, whitening his teeth and watching Elf. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so I, I definitely think, you know, if he's got to be here, he might as well get get at least a little bit of uh, attention from someone else, let's say. Mm-hmm. Did, did you clock the maneuver he did with her water bottle? I love that note. I think it's perfect. I want so what so because I missed that the first time watching, or I didn't get the but like I got some thoughts about it. What what do you think that they're what are they getting at there with him sniffing that? This is part of the subtle storytelling that I was talking about at the very beginning. He is sniffing this bottle. So what happens here, in case you missed it, is he picks up Liz's bottle off her desk, sniffs it, and then pours it into the plant to water it. He's checking to make sure that that is water. And not, let's yes. say, Jack Daniels or Absolute Vodka, right? Yes. He And this combined with the stuff he says about her being a mess um, or earlier in her career, actually even before the Jake and Holden thing happened, she was a mess. It tells me that she has had and probably still has a drinking problem. And then she says to, to uh, Navarro later, look, I, I barely drink, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's... That's something she does to keep herself in check because she knows she can get, she can go off the deep end with that stuff. Yeah, so him I sniffing wonder... it is just a brilliant, quick little way to tell us, oh yeah, he knows her history with this and it's not good. Absolutely, that's exactly what I got out of it too. That, um, you know, and I and it's like, did she did she have a pretty bad drinking problem that she dried up for when the drunk driving incident happened, um, or did she plunge into alcoholism after drunk driving and then um, her daughter Leah's like loss prompted her to? I guess it was, those were all the same thing too. But I didn't yeah. case like I, I so so they have in like an AA a, con- a concept of a dry drunk. Have you heard that? Huh. Where it's like a person has abstained from drinking, but they haven't done any of the internal work to like mm. not be an alcoholic. They're just like white knuckling sobriety. It's not yeah. an easy thing. It's like they're I wonder if they're trying to show that she because of the trauma of getting, you know, her loved ones killed through drunk driver. She's like dried up. But like the things that uh, made her an alcoholic are still there. You know, she hasn't solved any of the internal void that's causing mm-hmm. all these negative things that she has to self-medicate for she's throwing herself into the work as a form of self-medication as a form of distraction yep. it, it's really like you said I, I love it i i thought that was such a cool detail to throw in there uh, let me let me ask you this what do you think is the the timeline and the reasoning and like 
everything behind this because they make it clear that it didn't start her drinking didn't start with Jake and Holden's death. She was a mess before that. And yeah, I, I look back at that dancing scene now where they they say, oh, yeah, she smoked weed. Uh, I, I wonder if. I, well, I don't have a good a good way to reconcile those two things because she looks very happy, but she could also be drunk and high True. and abusing substances in that scene and we're just seeing the part where everything is fine and okay with that because they're dancing in the living room having a good time and then you fast forward and she perhaps gets her husband and son killed Uh huh. and also I can't remember if Liz herself said or someone said it about them that they even Jake and her had their as, as, as happy as we saw them in that moment uh they had their ups and downs right it wasn't like a smooth completely trouble-free relationship so mm-hmm. and uh, and the assessment of him of jake seems to be i guess rosier than the assessment i've seen of liz so far i don't mm-hmm. know if her demeanor changed after i mean obviously it changed after jake and holden died mm-hmm. but i i wonder if like he he was cool with that stuff and you know he'd smoke weed and have a good time but she like took it too far or something she would she would abuse it whereas he was just using it i also appreciate the way because one of the questions i had in my mind is like if when Connolly takes this over is liz going to try to pull a hank and keep some of the case files back apparently she shared everything with him he even knows about the annie video Mm-hmm. Um. So you know, she told him about her extracurricular forensic adventures. She told him about the video. She, I, I, I think they're trying to tell us that she is, she's, she's not trying to be territorial about this case thus far. Yeah. Um. We also learned another detail when she's talking to Navarro about you know that Julie's praying a lot. We know that Navarro's praying a lot. Uh. That when she lost her mom at the tender age of seven, her dad encouraged the girl, the, his family, to pray, and she said she prayed so hard that her knees turned black. Um. And this is one like core of her atheism. Like, well, and and I got nothing but black knees out of it. So then you know I kind of mm-hmm. learned to go about the other way. Did you think anything is interesting about the symbol symbolism of black knees? No. Did you? Just that, like all the men who were fra- flash frozen, their extremities were black. I I assume I associate black with like gangrene, dead tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously this is for very different reasons. This is like a black and blue bruising, but it's. And, I thought there's some interesting parallels there and just the visuals of it. Hmm. Um, right about here, Katie, who is uh, owns the mine as near as I can tell it, uh, yeah. calls in the middle of the night, says there's a problem at the mine office. She goes down there, and Leah has vandalized the corporate headquarters of the, the silver mine with murderers and a skull at the end to punctuate it. And Liz essentially calls upon Katie's Christian decency and the spirit of the season to get her daughter home, uh, which doesn't earn her any brownie points in her daughter's book because she moves out. Yeah, no. I mean, the first thing she does is say, I ought to kill you, you know? Um, Yeah, this this is... uh... Hmm. Why do you always take their side? I have a lot of complicated feelings about this scene. 
not yeah. not in its quality just in the the events of it like i don't know if kate feels like now she has something on liz like liz owes her one seems like it yeah it there's like a look it. on her face that says ha okay i'm gonna i'm gonna let you off the hook but i gotcha maybe she doesn't like the fact of have like being able to have her in her debt in some way yeah because i get the impression she also fucked her husband or something like, oh yeah clearly, uh, clearly. Uh, good lord um and then i'm i'm also conflicted on you know the uh leah's reaction to liz's reaction because mm-hmm. you know this is like i said earlier a pretty radical uh action to take i get that your cause is just i, I don't like, know i'm i'm conflicted on it i saw a lot of people you know even in our audience talking about like how could lee expect her mom the chief of police to be okay with this uh, a lot of people had some sure. some takes on uh was it is it katie uh kayla kayla is pete's wife like Pete's wife's being a giant bitch like yeah it's Christmas Eve but this is like a sextuple homicide and you know it's a very little but it's like to me this is telling a story of it's not about this event like mm-hmm. if you know Liz got in a phone call about the girlfriend and the and the, the, the amateur child pornography and had been a little bit cooler about it and not gone right to be like you're 17 and she's 15 and you should be smarter than this and it's about the, uh, the 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 tattoos, and you gotta scrub that shit off your chin. It's about the like, mm-hmm. you're going to the mining protest, uh, you know, and, and it's it, everything. Ev- like you always take their side. She's not just talking about the mine. She's like, every single time someone has lodged a complaint, even if it's a relatively normal, healthy. Like I think it's a high risk behavior. Teenagers share nudes with themselves, but guess the fuck what? They're gonna do it, you know. Sure. And yeah. as a parent, part of it is like, you know, dealing with the like, yeah, you got to guide them in, in the smarter decisions. But also, if I had a cell phone when I was 16 and I was had a hot, hot girl or boy I see in, I'd probably want to do that, too. This um, mm-hmm. is like Leah just feels like at no time her mom has her back when yeah. really her mom is just so fucking afraid of Leah making a mistake. So wind her up dead that that's all she can see. Um, yeah, and the tragedy of it is she's pushing her that direction by reacting the way she is, you know? Yeah. And that's baseline mom stuff. Now she's also chief of police, and she's the mm-hmm. enforcer of yeah. the law. And the mine is, like, not the law, but it might as well be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's... I guys, I really like it. I think they're doing a really good job of showing how, like, fucked up these dynamics are and what impossible positions are. But, yeah, I just want to push back a little bit of people saying, like, oh, Leah this or, oh, Kayla that. Watch out for that polar bear. We'll be right back. Time to continue our investigation back to the world we deserve. Right. Here's the the real false note to me in this scene. Mm-hmm. Outside this office building, there are a couple of Teslas parked out there. <laughs> does a does a? I mean, maybe they're a model. How much y, range do you? How much range do you get at negative forty with a Tesla? 
A, yeah, they got like 40 miles of range. Congratulations. Uh-huh. Uh, they have to tow a generator just to keep their battery charged. B, these are not equipped to deal with this amount of snow and ice. Like, everybody here should be driving trucks. Four-wheel yeah. drive, Cyber large... trucks. <laughs> sure, yeah. I, I, I bet the salt on the roads would, would treat those stainless steel panels pretty good. Oh, yeah. Well, they have magnesium yeah. uh, sacrificial, I don't know, bumpers. <laughs> they got zincs. They got zincs yeah. installed. Sacrificial yeah, like anodes, nice. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, nice. That's <laughs> actually not a bad here. idea, honestly. Yeah, the anodes? Uh, uh-huh. No, I, I just thought it was crazy to see two Teslas out there. I'm like, what good are those up here? <laughs> uh, Liz tries to beg and cajole Leah to stay, spend Christmas with her. You know, she's been, again, this is like she's been trying to do the good old-fashioned family Christmas, but they're not having a good old-fashioned family Christmas. And, you know, I kind of think Leah made the right cho- choice when she goes and she's with her laundromat grandma and she's with her uh tribal sister and they're having a great time and there's smiles and there's a genuine warmth if she had stayed there with liz it would have been a shit show it'd have been a shit show of mm-hmm. sullenness and liz would have just gotten a tip and abandoned her in christmas and eve anyway and i i, I love ahead. this this is another really i think subtle and great scene um yeah. th- there so so what is your take on the turkey because I've seen a lot of people being like, "Oh, we're taking turkey now. We're going to we're going to yeah. take and talk turkey." Okay, we're going to talk turkey. Uh, I've seen a lot of people saying she doesn't have time to cook that turkey. A turkey takes you know a raw turkey like that four hours in the oven minimum. She's already missed her window, and what the fuck is she talking about when she says you're going to miss the turkey? I think that's exactly the point. Yes, is that Liz has been so distracted by this case that it's now. What six p.m.? I don't know what time. It is, Who the fuck? It could be three p.m. for yeah. But but yeah, vandalism sure, but, at but, night. It's late. But she's going over to somebody else's house for dinner, so she's already missed the window on cooking this turkey. Right. Because she's so distracted by this case, it, it, they're telling yes. us that she, like her saying, "You're going to miss the turkey." That's her fooling herself. Like she was never right. going to make this stupid. This turkey. house is not smelling of turkey. It's not like no. you know, like look at all the work I've. It's she's yeah. Yeah, for sure. I I think that's what's going on in this scene. I think it's really, it's really good. And when she throws it away, it's it's partially because she's pissed at Leah, but it's also because she's pissed at herself. Yeah. Like, oh, here's a stupid turkey that I never even cooked, and I'm trying to get my daughter to stay here for what? There's nothing here for her. Yeah. Um, I think you're absolutely right that um, the the gap between her intentions with her family and her reality. And when I would say family, it's just her daughter. Like she yeah. intends to give her this warm Christmas as a child, the stability, but she's not. And like, you know, the open question is if, if it hadn't been for these bodies dropped on her, would she's done a better job? It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like it. Um, I, I have found some other thing. To, not when she says, "Oh, we're actually going to do the turkey this year," right? Yeah, you get the impression this is not the first time the turkey hasn't happened, right? Um, I'm what? What is the commonality between Hank and Connolly watching Elf? I don't is that know. Just what's on, or like I was trying to think, like what is the? Yeah, that was interesting. I mean, they have streaming services. In Alaska, I mean, that's a hell of a show internet. to watch on Christmas Eve. For no sure. problems there. It's just I thought it's interesting that they're both watching it and it seemed like they they're showing the scene of like Buddy falling in love 
you know, uh, with the, 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 ah, what is her name? The Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Zoe Deschanel. Yes, Zoe Deschanel. Um, then they're, they're trying to, like, kind of amp up the loneliness of Hank. Like, oh, look at this guy falling in love with this gal, and uh, my gal stood me up. I, I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Um, but he's watching Elf and Liz stops by bleaching his teeth and watching Elf like you do and Liz stops by to initiate sex with him but he is worried Um, and they kind of like you know he's asking some questions and she's picking up on it and uh, she accuses him of sending her to Ennis because she was scared to, that she was going to take his job and he freely admits that you were the better cop than me but you're shit with people and I had to, and then you were being a mess, and I had to transfer you to where you couldn't hurt yourself or the department. I'm willing to bet it's a little bit 50 50 there, but like clearly she has some problems. Yeah. I'm, I've just realized what Christopher Eccleston is doing with his accent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like a Boston, uh, Northeast accent. Ah. Right? I think he watched a bunch of the dangerous catch and he's going for a pitch perfect Stig. Okay. Yeah, it could Stig. be that. Is Captain Stig, is that or is that the test driver on the one the one uh, car on show Gear? you like? Yeah. I think it's both. I, I think Stig is I the, so too. the guy's yeah. first name. Yeah. Uh uh-huh. and it's also yeah, the driver. Uh what I, is, but that's very confusing to me. So he's got a Boston accent. Didn't Navarro say that her mother moved them to Boston? True. Yeah. And then came back to Alaska. Why is he from perhaps Boston? Uh, how did he get up here in Alaska? I don't know. Why is, is he like, here? Is Alaska like in uh, is is Boston like an Alaskan mine that like tropical Alaska? Yeah, like a town, farm team for work where you know saw Alaskans. like like it's like the the most blue collar of the kind of like New England towns. Is that yeah. just reputation? They're like, mean, yeah, New York got don't get me wrong, lots of blue collar, lots of tough, but like you also got Manhattan. You know, Philly's you got, also you got like yeah, Pittsburgh. Philly, uh, yeah, Philly, Pittsburgh, lot, those yeah, kinds of there's, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, I'm probably pissing a lot of people off. There's a lot of solid blue cla- blue collar credentials, <laughs> but not coastal towns. So like yeah, I wonder yeah. if that's like it's like oh this is just kind of like tropical Alaska or like not as isolated this is crowded Alaska and it's like well if you're wanting to start over from the mm-hmm. Alaska yeah like Alaska is where everybody in America goes to start over well if you want to start over in Alaska where the hell do you go some some fishing town <laughs> I don't yeah. know maybe I don't know I just thought it was interesting that there's a at least I think that's the accent he's doing I don't know it could just be that he's not doing a very good accent. <laughs> Uh, so Liz is pissed and she decides to get drunk and do some hard driving. It's a lot of the hard, hard driving, angry therapy in this episode. And she almost hits a polar bear who this polar bear is like me trying to uh, like, like I, like I, I just bought some food and it's packed in like a hard plastic clamshell. And it's like, ugh, it's, it's not worth the effort to try to f- open this thing right now. It's the, is the, it's kind of what I got from mm. this polar bear. Yeah, there's okay. too much glass and metal separating us, lady. Yeah. What do you think's going on with that? I'm trying to remember exactly what they said in the official podcast, but this this was the this is essentially the spirit world knocking on her door. It is yeah. what they were saying. Um Yeah. 
which I don't know how I feel about that. I I guess I want something of more consequence than just a metaphor. If you're going to introduce something that is physically really there, yeah. I kind of want it to be physically really there in the story too. So I don't know if I'm totally sold on this polar bear stuff. I think the polar bear is real, but it also is. could be like, but in okay. the story, it doesn't fuck. It doesn't matter. All it is, yeah. is a, some totem that says, Hey, the spirit world is right outside your door. Liz, I, if the polar bear like mauls somebody or becomes a clue in the case, then we can talk. But right now it's just there as a thematic element. Well, you know, they say the murderer is always the person you medium suspect. Like, is that the polar bear? We medium suspect the polar bear. Absolutely could be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's it's Christmas, and I, I like the scene of there's people ice skating in a pond, and Danvers is passed out, and she's remembering her child. Uh, she has a vision of what I would call a whalebone-based shrine that appears to be part of a larger graveyard. Um, it really reminds me of this Native American graveyard I saw in the Beaver Island archipelago on Garden Island. There's like uh, a, a Native American graveyard that has all these just rows and rows and rows of spirit houses. You know, some of them simple, some of them more elaborate, but there's these kind of like Lincoln log structures contained to, 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 or designed to contain the, the person's soul. And you can leave them offerings and whatnot. Um, but like, yeah, there's this like very distinctly non Christian, although Christian in like a syncretic way. Like it's like you could see that the whale bones crossed over like a small literal cross, like a Jesus cross. What did you make of this imagery? Um, nothing. Unfortunately, I hadn't thought. Can hear talking the twist and shout, her humming, singing twist and shout yeah. is all. It's all, it's tied to Holden somehow. There's maybe Holden's trying to say to say something because this happens right off the heel of the the polar bear. Yeah, could be. Um, and then yeah, there's this. This leads us to you know we already talked about Liz. Um. I guess we'll get to the the mystery of Otis Heiss and all that stuff. Uh, we 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 might be able to transition to the mystery at this point. Uh, one little um, but before we do, I guess there's one little thing that I didn't know where to put exactly, and it's Navarro's meeting with Rose. Mm, okay. What was the point of this i loved it it's great i love to see in rose is living her best christmas life she's all dolled up she's all she's cooking i think you're i think i understand that navarro was she's expecting company like she thought navarro was coming by and she decided to go all out um but like oh, really? you know we've, we we found out that she is a, a professor from a very important school that wrote very important papers that she just at some point realized oh my god all i am doing is contributing noise it doesn't matter to the world, and she wanted to move someplace quieter. And she found it ironic that Ennis is quiet except for the dead. But what are we? I I I, I speculated that there's maybe something to climate change. She might have been a climate change uh, change research specialist or something. That was her area of expertise. But there's nothing in the episode to really substantiate that. Um. So like, no. yeah, was it just uh? Just a little character moment, like a little piece, a little little bit of peace for Navarro before they throw her off the deep end. Is it like you know, Ennis is quiet except for the dead? Uh, I wonder if it's showing somebody who's okay with being alone. Um, yeah. 
Rose doesn't seem to have the same problems with loneliness that other people do. She's kind of happy in her loneliness. You Is know, that because she, she's constantly visited, you know? It could like, be. It could be, yeah, that she's not actually alone. She has these spirits um, yeah. that are with her. And they're more comforting than not, usually, it seems like. Uh, it could be. Uh, it's just interesting, you know, that she's making... she Because I don't, I don't think she knew Navarro was coming by. I, I think she's making this really? just to, this dinner just to make it, yeah. Okay, okay. This is for herself. This is... You know, maybe it's for the sake of her memories and the people that she's lost, or maybe it's just because uh-huh. she likes to bake, and this is an occasion where it seems worth it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I thought it was saying somebody who is kind of okay in that loneliness, but who knows? Gotcha. Okay. Well, um, let's move on to the mystery which kind of got a little bit sidelined. There's one, uh, like the big red letter event is Pete's research into any uh, injuries consistent with the Salal Station incident has yielded fruit in the personage of Otis Heiss, who back in the mid-90s suffered burns on both corneas, ruptured eardrums, and self-inflicted back. I guess it was in the late 90s, in 98. He's a German national with no work history, no current addresses, no known family, no known trace of any financial activity, a long history of criminal conduct, including disorderly conduct, uh, possession of uh, drugs. He's been in and out of rehab. Uh, He got picked up for causing a disturbance by a trooper two months ago. Um but unfortunately there's no one left to look for him. So she has, she bullies Pete into staying to doing an APB so they can look for both Clark and this Otis guy. Yeah. I'm super curious how this connects to, uh, Oliver Tagak and, the thing that stuck out to me is the ID stuff, right? The name and the, like, we don't have any records of this guy. Oliver didn't have any records. um, And yet he was working at the Salal research station. Yeah. Something about that says they're connected, but I don't know how yet. Yeah. I don't know either. I wonder if he's going to be the equipment manager before Tagak. Maybe, um, maybe because it seemed like no one knew that Tagak worked there too until someone started looking at things. So mm-hmm. I, but it is he's he's a big he's a big mystery. We'll be talking more about him. Um, the other thing about this scene is them doing the mutual fuck yous reminded me of her interactions with the Connolly, mm-hmm. and just in the back because you know they put in this whole kind of. Uh, idea that maybe Liz is trying to sleep with Pete or like maybe not trying to consciously but subconsciously that's that's her goal with every human interaction is to try to fuck him mm-hmm. uh, I just thought this, that's very similar behavior she's showing with Connell now they could be saying that she's just a misanthrope and she has this kind of like shitty behavior with everybody but like the 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 the, the way those exchanges was almost exactly the same between her once and former lover and this guy i thought i don't know i cocked a eyebrow medium high one eyebrow just one medium high mm-hmm. i don't know she does she does the same exchange of fuck yous with uh evangeline in this episode too so 
she well you know running. people are hot people are hot on the evangeline and liz theory too so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um they also her and liz or uh, speaking of navarro her and navarro are talking about the presence of the ice caves and how there's a lack of ice caves in the area um, which they think implies that the body was moved a, a, a considerable distance, which might imply that there this was a, a message being sent, which I think is something that Liz has been resistant to or not wanting to pull too hard on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they then go, they, they need to find someone that's got some expertise in ice cave. So surprise, surprise, they show up to the geology teacher's front door on Christmas Eve which did not impress the man's wife very much. Mm-hmm. Um, but he takes a look at the video. Very interesting. He says that he thinks these are prehistoric whale bones we're seeing in the ice. Yeah, he immediately identifies them. Very confident about yeah. that, too. Yeah, whale bones, probably prehistoric. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then he corrects the lady's misunderstanding that there are actually ice caves. They're just unmarked and extremely dangerous Mm -hmm. Uh, that you would need maps to find them and an expert to guide you through, or it'd be suicide to investigate it. Uh, And he finds out that the name of the man who mapped these dangerous tunnels out once before one Otis Heiss. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I have one burning question after seeing the scene. Mm-hmm. Why the fuck would you mount a lamp one foot over your head? <laughs> so every time you I get know, up, you, you have to either keep it in your mind and not thump it or you're going to thump it. Like you're you just, wouldn't. you're setting yourself up, man. There's no, yeah. there's, there's no, there's no cool or slick way from standing up from your seat. That's not going to thump your noggin. Nope. I agree. It's a terrible setup. Anyway, um, later on, uh, Liz is noticing a similarity between the video that the hot scientist filmed of making a sandwich and the, uh, the, the last desperate moments of Annie Kay, which is she thinks that there is a similar power cut MO. I don't know. This felt very disconnected. I'm not like I, I didn't. I, I thought this was um, this was a reach that she's making. Uh, and I'm one. I'm curious if it would, if it's ever actually going to track back to you know. It's like did it's just like oh well, Tagak had a generator and he's kind of an asshole about the investigation. So let's go invade his house or like, is, is there going to be any other tie-ins besides cut power? Did the polar bear cut the power? Did well, the it's also de- not. It's also not enough deduction. I like. It's very obvious to me that a power outage would not stop a phone from recording a video. And so, yes, and it didn't that stop that video Annie's. ends. Yeah, right. Annie, like after power cuts and she starts, she screams for quite a bit and, you know, something's happening to her. And this was after the power was cut. So why did the recording stop at Slal Station and not? Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't ask that question. She's asking the She's wrong question. not asking the right questions, yeah. Jim. Damn it. Um, all right. So, uh she gets she kind of she she bullies Pete and Navarra and the go in to check it out because she's too drunk to do it. She's too drunk to be back up to Navarra who could. And they're complaining about Danvers and how drunk she is, but also Navarro opines that she's probably onto something. And they arrive at the nomad camp and I couldn't help but notice all the very interesting bone sculptures mm-hmm. 
that very much reminded me of season one True Detective. And they he 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 doesn't answer, so they let themselves in, and the cabin is just froze, completely abandoned. Pete says it feels a lot like what? Salal, I think. It didn't to me though. I yeah. I, I don't know what else it would feel like though. Yeah, like Salal had power, which is interesting. If the power is cut, someone re- implies someone re- restored the power. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't like frozen inside and all that. I wasn't sure exactly what. What hmm. about this reminded you of the Salal station? Someone leaving half-eaten food. Is it maybe? Yeah, what would that remind him of? I don't think he was on the force six. Maybe he was on the force six years ago when Annie was killed. No way. This kid, he had been like 18. Like, I think, what do you think this kid, because, so she's trying to get through nursing school. I think they're in late 20s. I was thinking even early 20s. Um, Yeah, it's possible. Like, either way, I really don't think he would have been there. I I don't know. So they find a spiral. Uh, I also noticed that he left his boots behind. That's a odd thing to leave behind in in, in a big trek. Uh, they're right there by his shoes and his gun. Um, but they did find on the floor a big cardboard sheet of paper that has a large spiral, and at the center of that spiral is a small stone spiral. Um, I think they're going to find his body next episode. Like, did he walk out? That's what ice? I was thinking. That's, that's, that's what I would surmise when I saw the boots. I'm like, oh, he walked out on the ice again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, you know, who, I, I, I don't know. Or maybe he's going to join the heist. Uh the heist Clark, you mm-hmm. know, former equipment engineer club that they got going on in the ice caves, which is, I think what they're talking yeah. about with the night. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, so as they're investigating, they hear a commotion outside and they go out and the men of the, uh, nomad camp have, have got their dogs and their guns out and they're not threatening the officers, but they're making them feel like they need to get, they need to be moving on, which they mm-hmm. do. Um, and apparently they he left the day after he came, and they there was a market increase in hostility when they started asking about the spiral. Do you think these men know about the spiral, or are they just being protective of their own? Uh, they probably know something. I mean, that's the thing. If you want to know about the spiral, you can go ask Rose, and Evangeline knows this. It is a little bothering that that Rose seemed to know a lot more about and uh, maybe we're supposed to understand that Evangeline follow up on all those questions and we're just not privy to it but like yeah like she's like oh it's old it's older than Ennis maybe all right no questions no follow up hey uh, good (laughs) for Christmas dinner right all right I'll see you then like you're making macarons right awesome yeah see you then yeah no it's crazy and especially you know when you get this thing like Pete's not gonna go follow up on it I don't know I mean he wants to get home for Christmas but yeah that's that could be a a pretty big hole in the plot here just go ask Rose yeah so uh, Navarro and Liz are driving around when the Pete calls and says the local fishermen have spotted some strange activity near the dredges that the man in a pink parka has been sighted the pink parka that used to belong to Annie now belongs to Clark's they're like ah damn we've got our man uh, they go out to investigate. There's talk about these dredges. We talked about this on the instant take. Did you do any looking into these dredges? The gold dredges? No. Yeah. 
So these gold dredges are essentially giant industrialized versions of panning for gold. They have these mm-hmm. buckets that scoop in the stream beds. They dump it into this massive cylindrical screen that like sifts anything that's that's uh, bigger than like a quarter inch. Uh, goes out the back, all the the rocks and larger sediment. The smaller stuff is then finely sieved where, you know, it goes through. But it's essentially it's such a, a minor painting for gold. If you ever seen like the old 49ers, you know, painting for gold, it's essentially that at an industrial scale with these huge machines. Um, what if you they, find a big old nugget? What if you find a gold nugget? You're just going to kick it out the back with the rest of the rocks? Apparently so. Apparently so. I mean, wow. But, but the, the, the thing is, like, so, like, these gold... So, like, the whole idea of my, pi, panning for gold in these streams is that... Um, oh, God. This is one of those things where I, I understand enough to kind of understand it, but I realize I don't watch understand gold rush. it. Like, Alaska Gold Rush. I've seen enough of Alaska yeah, Gold Rush like, to I, know. Honestly, yeah. the a third of the Wikipedia article on these gold dredges is about their revival <laughs> on this show. Because nice. apparently what happened is, like, they would run these machines, these big, large machines, for they'd build them and run them for 30, 40 years, and whenever the gold output dropped below the cost of maintaining a machine, they just leave them there. And there's, like, all these abandoned yeah. things. Some of the, Sometimes they've been made into natural parks or, like, points of interest, but there's, like, dotted all over the American West and Alaska are these just abandoned dredges, just like this one. So, um... But yeah, they, they they chase him out there. Uh, they go in inside the machinery. There's all these weird murals. There's like a, what I can only refer to as a spider monkey. Uh, there's a boombox with a burning barrel. Uh, there's another one of those like menacing, bloody spirals. Uh, and sure enough, a man running in a pink parka. Liz gives chase. Uh, she finds out that it's not Clark. It's actually Otis Heist. Heist. Um... And apparently he's been living out there. He, she asked where Raymond Clark is. He knows that name. It says he's gone. He went back down to hide. He's hiding in the night country. We're all in the night country now. Let's stop there for a minute. What do you think the night country is? I've been racking my brain trying to figure out an actual definition for this. I think the key, and again, I could be full of shit. But I think the key to understanding this is him saying he went back down to hide. I think the night country is the ice caves. It's certainly possible. And I'm also going to state an additional internet points on the reason that they're called this by the weird blackwater drinking cult or whatever. These these people have gone crazy on the ice is because probably even at high summer, those caves like at best are lit like this pale blue, like this mm. twilight color. And it's kind of like they're the same all year round or maybe just the underground is dark. Um, but I, I think night country is these un, un, unlisted, unlicensed, dangerous caves that these crazy people hide out on. Which can kind of reflect, you know, the Carcosa stuff from season one, right? Absolutely. It's sort of a literal place, but it's also sort of a, a vibe, right? Yeah. Like it was yeah. a real place, but they've, 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 uh, they've done some work to the place, you know? Right. So yeah, I get behind that. And it's the uh, big hanging thread in this episode. Um, yeah. You know, the, all of the investigation that they do is around this Otis Heist guy and, the, and, and figuring out who might know about the ice caves we haven't got to the ice caves yet. That's where the real action is. 
Yep, we got two hours left to explore them. Um, meanwhile, so Liz is running after, as she runs after, Navarro hears this ghostly whisper calling to her, and she follows it. She sees her dead sister floating far below her in the bowels of the machinery of this dredge. Uh, she follows and sees bare footprints that go deeper and deeper into the building until they eventually just stop. And she investigates there, sees a lit Christmas tree uh, powered by car batteries. And she is confronted with the vision of her dead frozen sister. And then the la- then, then Liz gets done with Otis. They're, they don't make this clear. I'm assuming she handcuffs him and secures him and then goes to try to find her partner. Yeah, we'll, we'll see his fate because that is really the only thing that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, but she finds her sitting kind of cross-legged in front of this Christmas tree, uh, barely responsive with bleeding trickles of blood coming from her ear, from her, from her ears, uh, apparently suffered a burst eardrum. Mm-hmm. Anything else on the, uh, the, the, the mystery track? Like I said, that's not a lot of information no. we found out, you know, whale bones, prehistoric whale bones, Otis Heiss, and, and now they have uh, a guy who might lead them to the caves, the ice caves. Yeah, so. has at least familiarity, the expert. He is the expert. He's the guy to map them. He's mm-hmm. uh, seen better days, but... Yeah. I do wonder why... Well, maybe it's because he experienced whatever the night country insanity is uh, in a mm. place that wasn't frozen solid, but mm. I do wonder why he doesn't have the same grievous injuries that the scientists do because the scientists i mean even lund didn't survive right it killed him maybe because she wasn't awoke yet whatever she and yeah awake means and i'm curious to see clark what his status is when we finally see him don't be afraid of the dark we'll be right back She's awake, and we're back. Here's more of the world we deserve. All right, well, let's move on to Pete and Hank. Uh, Hank is waiting for his fiance at the local airport with an Alaskan rabbit, and he's seeing he's desperate. Everyone seems like everybody's left, and he sees this very attractive woman uh, approach the stairway, and she just retracts it, and they take off. That's the thing is like I this is where it's like I think he's this type of idiot where he's engaged in his relationship with sight unseen. Even though it, the, he's sending her pictures though. Right. That's what it is. Uh, it's, it's a one-sided <laughs> that catfishing. Her. That was actually her, but she saw how old he was. <laughs> this yeah, guy's not she's, 25. This guy's yeah, 50. Yeah, yeah, she looks as like, this dude's like like 20 years older than I thought he was. Hey, uh, would you uh-huh. go ahead and push up the stairs? I'm going back to Russia. I'm just going to go <laughs> yeah. across the strait. She brought, oh, bought man. a round-trip ticket just in case with his money. So Hank goes back to the station, starts drinking, starts drinking Spike Coffee, uh, a.k.a. the classic Four loco. And he confesses to his son, Pete, that uh, his fiance wasn't on the plane, but he makes he makes a uh, yeah, just some emergency. Something happened with her mom. And Pete's like, oh, dad, you haven't sent her money, have you? And then he immediately changes to like, you know what? I'm free for Christmas Eve. How about I hang with the family? Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you trust, make of Pete? I don't I don't trust this chipper Hank. Uh, 
Hank knows. Hank feels the betrayal. Hank feels the shame, the embarrassment. Hank is going to be a problem next episode for somebody. It could be especially if Liz goes at him and Liz absolutely will go mm-hmm. at him. Um, I, but I, I think that there he's got at least one half of his brain still in denial. That like it, it maybe something happened at the at customs maybe something happened with her mother at the last minute maybe uh she probably would have she probably would have at least called or texted but i mean i don't know i think that there's, just, there's a little he's still a little but may, maybe that's where he started and by the end of the episode as he watches elf and sees his bed. giant bottle of champagne in the bed he's like but yeah it, it's it's interesting to me how he reacts here because if he if he does realize that he's been fooled, then all he's doing here is prolonging or, or delaying the inevitable, right? Because there's going to be a point where he has to admit that if this this woman's never going to show up, that's the thing, and so there will become a point where he has to admit to not just himself but to everyone that he was fooled. Yeah. And he's just like this chipper act. Oh, I'm sure there's a reason we'll do it. He's just trying to deal with this emotional bomb later, I guess. Yeah. 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 So, uh, oh, what do you, what do you think about Pete? How, what is his excitement level at his old man joining him for Christmas Eve? It seems semi-genuine, although he does at the end say, well, I need to, you know, call up my wife and that talk to her. That was my read, that Pete's kind of happy that he's going to stop by, but then thinks, oh, but I'm kind of already in Dutch with my mm-hmm. wife for working late on Christmas Eve. What about, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's making a meal with laundromat grandma, and are, is there going to be enough for an extra person, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's the next scene as you see Kayla and Leah and, and grandma having a great time cooking. And then you see Peter calling and the, her face kind of falls and she excuses herself. So obviously it's kind of ruined the good time that they were having. Um, we talked about this in the instant take, but like Hank watching Elf and seeing the giant bottle of champagne, which is, I think, a nice bottle. It's like a 5060. It's not like Asti Spamante or Brute or... You know the I, what, whatever the, the the five dollar bottles like they used to be the two dollar bottles but now are five dollars because of inflation. It, it's 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 actually champagne. It's bubbly. Nice. Uh, the, his his camo bed sheets with the fucking rose petals on it and another stuffed animal. Um, yeah, it uh, it made me feel bad for Hank. I didn't think that could happen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if he came home and, like, trashed a place, I'd be like, yeah, fuck you, get what you deserve. But he's genuinely kind of devastated, and it felt... Oh, it's yeah. Christmas Eve, man. <laughs> it's Christmas Eve. Yeah, nobody deserves that on Christmas Eve. Not even fucking Scrooge, right? Yeah. So, uh, then Pete walks home, and this is brutal, too, after his adventures, and he sees the glow of the Christmas tree, you know, and all the Christmas presents underneath it. And he goes to get in bed with his wife, but he apologizes and she snaps because he doesn't give a genuine apology. It's more of like you're being a bitch apology. And she just says, let me sleep. And he he drops out. Why don't you say it that I ruined your life and you didn't want to have the baby? Wow. And the overhead shot of the demilitarized, the demilitarized <laughs> zone that is their bed is another like Hank and Pete. Oh, oh. <laughs> I would not trade Christmases with them. No. Uh, it feels a little bit like he he kind of um, Jerry from Rick and Morty. 
he kind of jerried her Beth. Like he locked her down with a child that she might have wanted like to get might have wanted to have an abortion and maybe gone to medical school and maybe gotten away from Ennis and he trapped her with a whole bunch of promises about support and help and here she's raising the kid alone on Christmas. It's like, yeah, there's this isn't just this isn't just this case is what I, I I'm begging for people to understand. You know, mm-hmm. this is this is a long process. It's got them to this level of of yeah. If this is the first time, I would be like, yeah, you know, Kayla, she's Christ. It's not every Christmas that you catch a octuple homicide investigation yeah. that opens up a six year old investigation into a native woman that's murdered and all that. And you only yeah, but like it's clearly it's clearly been a process that that Liz has been doing and that he's been ignoring and and there's promises made and not promises kept and that's my read of it anyway yeah and I it's it's tough too because like Liz in this episode is more nakedly manipulative I think of Pete than she has been in the past but before it's always been orders like you know go do this thing and Pete's been like, oh, okay, fine. Yeah. Means I'm going to miss another wa- night with my wife and I'm supposed to watch the kid or whatever. Here, she kind of... She makes him choose between his father and his wife and this case, her, in fact. And then when he picks the same thing that he's always picked, she yeah. gives him the pat on the head, right? Like, and And she says, she has to like beg him, I couldn't do this without you. And then she says, that's my boy when he agrees. Yeah. There, there's something grosser about this that's going on here. Cause, I mean, saying that stuff, like, that's my boy in particular. Mm-hmm. This isn't your kid. Mm-mm. This is Hank's kid. You know that Hank has a problem with the way you've been moving in on this relationship, whether it's sexual or not, it doesn't matter. I Yeah, I think it's it's a little gross that line from her that's my boy yeah yeah i agree do we have anything else we need to discuss about the episode proper or should we start huffing some psychosphere yeah let's sniff it i'm ready all right we got a lot of email uh true detective at baldmove.com is how you send it into us uh also if you want to know what we're doing next because we're gearing up to do uh i believe shogun and the walking dead the ones who live the rick and michonne uh series we got pulp and prestige covered if you want to keep up with what we're doing in terms of movies and whatnot uh we have a social media we have many social medias they're all at bald move pick which one you want to follow and follow it uh, and then finally, if you'd like to support us, they get ad-free feeds. If you'd like to get access to the fabulous instant takes that we won't be doing this weekend. We will not be doing it this weekend. But for the finale, definitely want to get in on that. Uh, we could use your support, support.baldmove.com. You give us money, we'll give you more podcasts and ad-free feeds. Win-win. All right, up first, the true detective at baldmove.com hotline, Harris. My only hesitation at this point is halfway uh, point in the show. The killer is the guy you most medium suspect, not the person you most suspect. Hank is definitely the guy I most suspect. First, (laughs) he's a creep. Again, that's almost an exoneration at this point, but he's such a creep. The big clue of episode three was the blue hair dye. It was actually the blue paint from the room Hank is painting for his Russian bride. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> plus this episode Peter brings the skates to the rink that has blue paint on it it seems to exactly match the paint in the picture this paint All definitely right. comes from Hank 
Plus, if you go back to the episode one, that same paint is all over Hank's clothes and hands. We know Hank is connecting to the mine women. We know there's a motive for them to have killed Annie in their protests. Uh, Hank also got to Slaw Station first and is evasive when Danvers asks why he got there first. The only exoneration for Hank is the halfway point the guy all signs are pointing out can't actually be the killer. I will want to point out that almost all of your evidence is neatly explained by the guy painting his wife or his fiance's room blue. He got blue mm-hmm. paint on his hands and blue paint on the skates. Uh, I mean, if you want to say he got blue paint on Annie's hair six years ago, okay. But Navarro doesn't seem to think so. Navarro seems to think that the hair dye lady did it. Well, blue paint on the on the photo. How recent is that blue paint? Is that blue paint from back in the day when she was having her hair dyed? I mean, wouldn't the why why blue would the paint. photo be there? I guess, but or is it from uh, Hank rifling through these files to make sure there's nothing in there that connects him or something before he hands them over to Liz, and that's why he's dragging his feet. It looked like ink, not paint to me. It looked like, you know, like dye, you know, like like the like the kind mm-hmm. of dye you would get if your hair your you showed a picture to your hairdresser and her hands were covered in dye, you know. Sure. But I understand. Um I want to bring it back to someone that here here's who, I I keep coming back to, you know, you watch the detective, you meet the killer riding a lawnmower in the third episode. And at, he will not come back into his story until the final one. Mm-hmm. Who do you think the person most resembling this is? Kavik. Incidental contact, Kavik. Kavik? Yeah. You think Kavik has been this one guy who had this one scene and we oh, never saw no, him no, again? No. Yeah. Uh, but my, you really, my mind you're, is you're on the cat because we see- do have some, fe- we got some Kavik feedback. Kavik is medium suspected. It would be real heartbreaking if that were the case it uh, sure who, would who is i mean rose she's like the most go, incidental character i can think of but she's been in it a few times i'm gonna go with a woman who matches the handprint on the men's boots that were missing oh, fingers that yeah, was just yeah, this yeah. mousy Claire character in the background that was kind of the focus of an investigation but then this other thing happened and i i think yeah. it goes like sh- she's somehow connected I don't know that she's a bad person, but she is somehow connected to this Annie situation, to the disappearance of the men. I, that's the person that I am medium suspecting right now. All right. Uh, let's go to Sean from Cincinnati. Uh, local local boy. Says, totally agree on the obviousness of a common Arctic star-shaped tool, but what if it's a common, quotes? tool but not really obvious to most folks i took to looking into it and found that there are various shapes and gauges of leather punch tools and he includes a photo here of some star-shaped leather punches of various sizes says wouldn't seem totally unusual for some leather craft to be present in innis i keep coming back to like if yes but if this was a common thing in the trade people would know about it maybe there's this one person that does but that's what I'm saying. Like, so, like, if if it's someone from Ennis, I can't believe no one knows. Like, oh yeah, it's Bob. He does all the star shaped assless chaps down. You know, it's like he's he's famous for his 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 uh, star punched assless chaps, or he's famous <laughs> for his moccasins that got the stars punched out of it. Like, somebody would know. It's too small of a town for someone to be using. 
you know, anything like that. But that I will say that that if 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 I was described the wound one of these tools would make, it would be star shaped. It looks like it's designed mm-hmm. to punch out star shaped things out of organic tissue because it is. Yeah, exactly is. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah P says one thing I haven't heard speculated among much is the star shaped weapon used on Annie K, and maybe that's because as you'll see, it isn't much help narrowing down suspects. But for the sake of internet points, the star shaped wounds could come from a Torx screwdriver bit or wrench. The larger ones can go up to T100 at 22 millimeters wide. And here's the kicker. They can be used on heavy machinery, vehicles, electronics, which doesn't eliminate anyone in this challenging environment. If they ever get Mm -hmm. to this specific investigation, some star bits are hauled out as a security feature, which might narrow it down to Salal Station, but just could easily be tied to proprietary mining equipment. So, So okay, but this next one, check this out. The alternative is a much wilder pull in that some Mosasauruses were known to have star-shaped teeth. Perhaps you stumbled into it. Yep. I'll, I'll, I'll get there here in a minute. Okay. So, okay, no, right, we'll do it. Mosasaurus are like a form of aquatic dinosaur. Like, I would call them pl- the, like the pleosaurs, but they're short neck, and they could get massive, like 50 okay. feet. 50 feet or longer. I see where you're going with this, yep. Perhaps we stumbled in a cross-platform promotion for the upcoming Netflix series around Jurassic Park called Chaos Theory. Um, but maybe that got kicked off when the Salal scientist uh, coring down the ice shell from the Cretaceous period unwittingly woke a female Mosasaurus. She's awake, and then killed Annie <laughs> Kay when she attempted no. to green piece the beast back into the sea. I don't Come know how now. serious she was, <laughs> yeah. because I'm like, star-shaped There's teeth, get the, the fuck end. out of here. But I did a little search, and apparently, recently, a uh, Moroccan and North African species of ancient Mo- Mosasaur has been discovered as star-shaped teeth. They've been described as looking like a Phillips-head screwdriver with like an extra fin on it. Um, and I, but the, yeah, I these teeth, and they can be like an inch or two long with these fifty-foot Mosasaurs. I could see a weapon with that that could punch and. Could you misinterpret a mo? Because I saw some skeletons of them, and I looked at side by side with yeah. the whale, and I could easily mistake a mosasaurus skeleton for a whale skeleton. I would think. Yeah, that. So that was the interesting part of this. Um, so, so there. Are, I, I think both of these theories become more plausible this episode with what we found out about uh, Otis Heiss and him being what the form or, or no I, i'm sorry was it takak who was the former like engineer yep at the station um, yep he would probably have you know a lot of torx head screwdriver stuff sitting around um yeah and just you start stabbing somebody there might be uh some torx head shaped uh wounds so that's a little tidbit and then on the other side here with the teeth i think there's I mean, saying, hey, those are whale bones. I, I, I'm super curious because this guy seemed very confident. And yeah, especially with the ancient, because like this is a this is a culture. This is one of the few cultures on Earth that can hunt whales without any kind of like Alaskan Native Americans are allowed to hunt a certain amount. And I don't even think a certain amount. They're allowed to hunt whales to subsist on. So <laughs> okay. like this is a culture we saw with their burial sites that they're like the whale this you know with the seal and the polar bear and the walrus and everything out they, they they this is a a big part of their culture so like for him to be like oh those are whale bones probably prehistoric that prehistoric has got to mean something 
Yeah, and if I mean she's down in the ice caves, you could see um, some thaw happening down there to make the caves, and there happens yeah. to be these Mosasaurus teeth sitting around, and they're used as the murder weapon uh, yeah. for whatever reason. I know there's I, I some like. It uh you, you know like there's some native american especially like in central america i'm thinking like the incans and aztec would make these war clubs that were these kind of like flat paddles and they embed uh sharp flint and stone to make like these cutting surfaces but they'd also embed animal teeth yeah so it's like now this is central america is pretty far fucking away from you know the inuit and inupiat cultures of, of alaska and canada mm-hmm but could you make a, a primitive dagger out of one of these star-shaped teeth? Like, I don't know. Eh, eh, sure. Eh. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how they'll discover that. The scientists will call them back up and say, eh, actually, I was wrong about the whale right thing. It's a mosasaur. Right as they're going to the ice cave, they'll, they'll get a uh -huh. call as the cell phone receptions. It's, it's, I, I was wrong, Liz. It's not a whale bone. It's a, <laughs> it's a mosasaur, it's a mosasaur it's a tooth. She's awake. You gotta She's get awake. out. You gotta get out. She's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can see it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Let's move on to Gnarls. He says, I was thinking about the interview with Finn Bennett where he claims to pay attention to the oranges. Because of this, more discussion of the incident on the tundra with Navarro and her throwing of the orange is warranted. Earlier in the season, in this very episode, the issue of Navarro's Inupiaq name is brought into question. The issue, This issue of what it means is to be a part of indigenous culture in Ennis affects other characters as well, Leah and Annie Kay. So anyways, back to the oranges, it is well documented that scurvy has been endemic for outsiders living in Arctic regions due to short supply of vitamin C dietarily. Indigenous communities avoid scurvy by outcome of their diet. Fresh meat and fish, plants and berries. This is the reason why Hank's hillbillies have a bunch of oranges. When Navarro tosses the orange into the tundra and the tundra returns the orange to her, I believe this is related to her relationship with her own culture. In many ways, Navarro is an outsider, uh, despite also being a member of the community. Does she, do the uh, Tundra, Sedna, whoever is awake, know that she cannot remember her Nupiak name? Could a reconnection to her culture be the key to solving the Annie K and Salal cases? So I thought this, this email pairs well with another one sent by Jessica S. I just want to go ahead and reading. She says, I had an idea about the orange imagery because it can also symbolize forced assimilation. Orange Shirt Day is specific to Canada and honors indigenous children sent to residential schools. Uh, as an aside, I looked into this on the Wiki on Wikipedia, and it explains that the National Day for Truth or Reconciliation, originally and still colloquially known as Orange Shirt Day, is a Canadian holiday to recognize the legacy of Canadian uh, Indian residential school systems. The use of orange shirt as a symbol was inspired by the accounts of Phyllis Jack Webstad, whose personal clothing, including a brand new orange shirt, was taken from her during her first day of residential schooling and never returned. The orange shirt is thus used as a symbol of the forced assimilation of indigenous children that the residential school system enforced. Back to Jessica's email. She says, I'd guess that oranges are very expensive to import thus far north and thus hard to come by. I'd uh, then go as far as to say... Uh, make the assumption that oranges were not something native cultures even knew about in northern Alaska until the white people started colonizing. The frivolousness and ignorance of these white hunters is exemplified by their purchases of these oranges in a careless way which are cared for them. Evangeline is literally throwing a symbol of forced assimilation away from her and it comes rolling right back. I think we're on to something. I, I think that it still works in a 
uh, Godfather's sense, but like if you're Issa Lopez and you're researching, because you know this isn't her culture. You know, Issa Lopez is you know I think passionate about the indigenous women thing and she's curious about it and she wants to tell a story. But this is not she's not telling a story about her culture. Um, I think if she's doing a research and she sees about Orange Shirt Day, and she can take a, a like a Western motif of death. And roll that into that. That's pretty fucking tasty. Yeah, I think the other thing that this orange stuff is doing is it's saying uh, Evangeline is trying to reject that that spiritual calling she's getting, but it's pointless. She can't reject it. It's just like her her sister did, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as yeah. it's the same, it's it's her polar bear. It's mm. it's the what the polar bear is to Liz, the orange is to seemingly both of the the sisters i think it's interesting too the whole like the scurvy aspect that like the you know because i i hear that the the natives in alaska i could be wrong but this is this is what i've i've come to understood not only do they get most of their vitamin c through eating animals but they like cook a lot of things that like we throw out like the liver the liver is very rich in vitamins and minerals as something that they incorporate into their diet more so than like we consider it as like awful you know like that's like it's like, like that's like that's the, that's the stuff of the animal you throw away like the brains the tongue the organs that's that organy meat that like only poor people eat right uh mm-hmm. I think that's there's there's something to all that, and it's like the orange is a symbol of the outsider that she's trying to reject. It's also the symbol of forced colonization and assimilation. There's got to be something to some of these theories, I think. Yeah, makes some sense. All right, Cassie B writes in. I think that when Danvers is on her phone and she says she's on Tinder or doing fantasy football, I think she's actually the fake Russian bride and is effing with Hank. I don't think those details were called out to further define Danvers' personality. <laughs> I don't know if, how serious she is, but I kind of love that yeah, Liz that is the hilarious. one catfishing Hank. <laughs> You're going to keep my department's records, Dick? Well, I'm going to invent a Russian bride for you to fall fall on like this, a sword. Yep. Uh, and then number two, Danvers has been pretending to hate Navarro to protect her from Hank. Hank knows what really went down with the Wheeler case and is holding that over Danvers' head which is also why she can't properly discipline him. Danvers sent Navarro to the troopers so that Hank would not be able to mess with her and is pretending to hate her so that Hank doesn't go after Navarro to mess with Danvers. Navarro does not know that Hank knows and thinks Danvers actually hates her. That's plausible that, like, she's shielding her from, you know... But I I don't know because the other thing I don't like about this is that Hank, I think, is the original police chief. And then Danvers got kicked out of there and kind of took over. So, like... Yeah. You know, how would he not know that they developed a really, uh, yeah, that that's, but I, I, I like it in theory. I just don't know if it's, it's going to work out in practice. Uh, Rachel from West Virginia says, I found myself enthralled this season of true detective. I'm loving the mystery of the scientists and Annie Kay. I couldn't help but notice some similarities between the death of the scientists and an old Soviet cold case from the February of the 1959. The, uh, Diatlov pa, Diatlov pa, I cannot say Diatlov pass. I want to say pass. Diatlov pass incident. The particular cause involved nine student trekkers from a polytechnical institute that went missing during a hike. They were later found outside their tent, some without any clothes on, and all with various injuries, including missing eyeballs, fractured skulls, and missing tongue. 
It's a mystery for years. Why did they run out of their tent without clothes or shoes and sub-zero temps? Many theories abounded. Military involved, infrasound waves, animal attack, avalanche. At the time, it was concluded that a compelling natural force drove them outside their tent. Recent interest in the case led to new investigations. It's come to the conclusion that an avalanche caused them to run out of their tent and animals were the cause of the injuries to their bodies. I guess team rational for the win. Either way, it's an interesting subject if you wish to delve into it more. I We talked about this in a preview podcast. Like This is one of the main things that inspired this story. Uh, and I keep getting like four to six emails each week, so I didn't want to talk about it again. I don't think there's anything more to it than like this is the real life inspiration for you know mm-hmm. this this event. Um, I will say that like I didn't read the avalanche theory. The theory that I read is that like essentially a carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide poisoning from their poorly maintained cooking gear got them all like you know asphyxiating themselves, and then that plus the cold caused paradoxical undressing and paradoxical undressing and then they died of exposure and then animals preyed on their dead bodies but regardless you know I don't think that it's just my opinion that sifting through that case is not going to give us the real answer to the 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 killers here you know these are just these are just something that inspired her to write this story you know that's just my that's just my my two cents on I could be wrong but that's one of the reasons I have kind of been skipping these because we already talked about in a preview podcast and there's been nothing that I've seen thus far that that connects the two other than the obvious inspiration there. Your thoughts, yeah. Jim? Ferris Bueller drove them all insane. So they ran out into the snow and died. Boom. Solved. All right, Derek from New Jersey. Uh, you may have touched already on this, but I keep going back to the opening quote in season four, episode one, being from Hildred Castigain, or Castain, rather. Uh, she was an unreliable narrator, and therefore I believe the investigators are all unreliable as well, especially Navarro, due to the water slash ancient bacteria theory. Thanks. Hope you boys are drinking Lone Stars and none of that fancy shit. Yeah, I've gone full circle. In my early 30s, I was a big fan of the hops and the sours and the cloudies, and now that I'm a, an ancient 40-year-old, I've gone back to just, I like I like... Paps Blue Ribbon and Miller High Life, and that's it. <laughs> I just, I can't, I can't drink a 200 IBU beer anymore, man. It's just, it's just not happening. Um, I'm like Liz with beers. I rarely drink beer. Yeah. I, I, so I looked into, we, we talked about this before when the name got dropped, but like this Repair of Reputations is a short story pu- uh, published by Chalmers, or Chambers rather, in his collection, The King in Yellow, that he wrote in 1895. Uh, it's an example of his horror fiction, um, and it's one of the ones that contains the king in yellow, which is why we're all a Twitter about it. Um, mm-hmm. The story set in New York City in the year 1920, 25 years after the st- story's publication. So it's a sci-fi novel of its day. It's told from the view of Hildred Castang, uh, a man whose personality changes drastically following a head injury sustained by falling from his horse. He's subsequently committed to the Asylum for the Treatment of Insanity by uh, Dr. Archer due to his accident at Hildred as a prime example of an unreliable narrator. This is going to come back to just head trauma. Yeah. The concussions and the blows to the head, which Navarro, not for nothing, sustained even more severe ones to this this episode. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm dead serious. I think that this is like almost a smoking gun. That this, this is sister? the... the, the did she get like drunk driving car accident head okay. trauma <laughs> it all it's all drunk driving and head trauma 
Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. I guess if they examine her in the hospital next episode and say, oh, yeah, you have a massive concussion and you've probably had one for your entire life. I guess. Blue Sleeve says, after the second episode, I rewatched all of season one because I felt like I was missing a lot of the connected tissue Easter eggs. After this past week, I find myself starting to get a lot of lost vibes, beginning to feel like things will not really get answered and possibly not really connect with the exception of name drops and the same spiral imagery. My hopes, which is not likely to come to fruition, is that this season ends with a solid through line that kicks open the doors to a larger Tuttle conspiracy. Because after all, Russ did mention not getting all the bad guys in the season one finale. Do you think that all this connective Easter egg tissue is going to be red herrings, or will we actually get a tight, thorough line connecting season one and four to each other? Maybe this could even lay the groundwork for an end cap season five, perhaps a team up. Um, let's. I think this pairs nicely with the next email from Alexander. Jim, would you like to read that? Sure. Alexander says, thinking a lot about season one and how we know without a doubt that Night Country was written and then retrofitted. I think it's pretty clear these are just nods to season one. Maybe it's done to service theory craft. But I think Issa had Rose have a deceased lover. She just slapped Cole on it. She probably had an arcane symbol, so she went with a spiral. There was likely going to be a crab factory, so why not Blue King Crab? Shady Shell Company behind stuff? Sure. Tuttle. Point being, it's not actually going to circle back. Uh, and I don't think trying to solve for that is worth the effort. It's a standalone story and a heck of a good one. I think that's literally true. Um, the only thing that makes me not suspect it is that it, man, it really does feel like a lot of the particulars of Liz and Evangeline are based on Marty and Russ. Um, but okay. even then it's like supposedly, uh, um, Jodie Foster came in and reinvented, uh, the Liz character to be more closely, you know, something that she could portray. So it's like, I don't even fucking know, but it seems I, like this makes a lot of sense what Alexander's saying, but like, there are so many clear parallels between Marty and Russ and Liz and Evangeline, even down to their police encounters and how they're going about business that, yeah, like it almost makes me think that maybe this this interview is a psyop and this was, was more tightly uh, planned on season one. But I I literally like if I'm being team rational, I literally think what they're laying out here is the truth that like there is going to be very cosmetic tie ins to the season. But, you know. Yeah, um, I'm starting to feel that for sure. I, I don't. Here's the other thing. I don't think it's a good idea to bust open a tunnel door. I just don't, I don't know. I, I'm not looking for that out of True Detective, I guess, to kick yeah. open the door and suddenly tie all these seasons together. From Louisiana the all the way up to Alaska, yeah. Yeah, and then do another few, few seasons to capitalize on the groundwork they laid here. I That's just not what I want from this inherent anthology show. Um, mm. The nods are okay. Here, here's what I think we're going to get, is we're going to get unsatisfying... Uh, ending point for the spirit the ghost stuff they're not going to actually tell us whether these ghosts are real whether these people are insane whatever what we are going to get is concrete answers for how these people were killed okay the the mystery has to be solved because that's one thing they do in season one they solve the mystery like yeah we know this person what the tunnels were up to yep yeah, we know how they were doing it, all of that stuff. We have to know how these people died. And if we don't know that by the end of the season, I think that's a failure of a murder mystery show. 
I agree. I do get the sneaking suspicion that this is going to feel much like Enemy uh, Lies Beneath, or what was it? What Lies Beneath, much like Issa Lopez's other work, uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid. I think that, like, you could watch, you could watch Tigers Not Afraid with a with a skeptical hat and be like, oh, these are children having some shared hallucination off of some trauma, and that this what really happened was this or that. But I think Issa and the film itself has a point of view that no actually supernatural shit happened. And I think that's I true think of this that's, as well. Yeah. I think that's what's going to go down. That like you could be like, oh well, you know, she hit her head and she's running low on vitamin C and she huffed a little bit too much psychosphere. Uh, and she's, <laughs> she's, she's losing. She's paying $20 for Oreos has driven her mad. Yeah. <laughs> driving her, yeah, the, the Alaskan based inflation is just too much. But like uh-huh. I think that the I I think uh, that the show's POV is going to be something supernatural's happened. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's what it's shaping up to be. But I also yeah. want concrete answers about how these people died. I think we'll we'll get that too. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the next one, Mike from Brooklyn says, "I want to talk a bit about a win for Team Irrational and a trope that truly grinds my gears." So far, I'm absolutely loving this season. The writing's been exceptional, acting incredible. But they're definitely putting their fingers on a scale for Team Irrational this week. Danvers acknowledged that Navarro saw a ghost or spirit. Danvers is now a trope called the Natheist, which is a really common trope in Christian media. To be a Natheist, a character must be loudly and aggressively and performatively professing their lack of faith, but actually deep down know that God exists and is just angry at God for taking away something from them, usually a loved one. Mm-hmm. As an atheist, I find this trope extremely condescending. I'm not an atheist because of something awful happened to me. In fact, I feel incredibly fortunate. It won't necessarily go as far as our friend Russ Cole, but we and the world are just an evolutionary phenomenon and not the result of anything magical. It's another clear signal that the show will be heading into the supernatural direction. While I object to this overused trope in general, it won't deter me from enjoying the otherwise fantastic season of television. Got a atheist with a bit of a chip on the old shoulder, it seems. Uh, I'm with you. This, this absolutely feels condescending when they do this. Uh, as somebody who... I think comes by their atheism, honestly. And and it's weird because if you look at my past, you could say, well, this guy definitely has a chip on his shoulder. That's oh, why he doesn't believe in God. <laughs> the The trouble with that is when I tell people I never believed in God. Yeah, I, yeah, I was part of a cult that believed in a God uh, so fervently that, yeah, they're, they eventually cast me out for not believing and among other things that for breaking their rules, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh I never believed it. That's the thing. You, it, I just never felt like there was anything else there. So yeah, when when you say, "Oh, these atheists," you know, they protest too much. It's it's insulting. It's absolutely yeah. insulting. However, I absolutely know of these atheists. Like these, they walk amongst us. Like it is like I'm sure they exist, not yeah. you know like like people that are butt hurt by their experience of religion and people who are yeah. mad at God and like reject him because like, I just like, I, you know, I, I, I can't conceive of a heavenly father would actually behaving this way. That's different than someone who's just like, Oh, I've looked at the evidence and it turns out this is all, you know, fairy tale type stuff. So it's like, I can't get too mad at it. Cause I've known people that I, you know, just like we talk about dry drunks. Uh, I believe on the instant take, maybe we talked about this, this uh, on this podcast. I think there's dry atheists or dry theists which are white knuckling yeah. the absence of God and are terrified <laughs> to die. And there's, yeah. So like, I mean, the reason this is a trope is because that's the most dramatic place to take an atheist to, right? 
the yeah. point where that belief system is challenged. And yeah. it just so happens that everybody who writes about this eventually wants to say, oh, yeah, the atheist is wrong because a lot of people because the vast majority of people in this world in, in the, this country absolutely are Christian and they, and you they can have argue. the viewpoint of God exists. And so when they're writing something about an atheist, they're writing from that viewpoint. And you could argue from a storytelling perspective, a world with an act of God is way cooler and more interesting. You could argue it. Sure. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. For, for certain types of stories. So like I, like I said, I, I don't, I don't begrudge it. Like, um, and I don't even see it as kind of thing because it's like it just I don't see myself in that interest. It's like, you know, like some people get like really fucking offended when when women start talking about all men do this or that or the other. I never feel offended because like, I fucking don't, you know. Well, it's the frequency of it, right? Like far more times the atheist is written like this than just yeah. somebody who doesn't believe in God. And that's a thing. And it's not their defining yeah. characteristic. Right. I mean, the way atheists are written about is much like the reasons people object to a lot of the writing around women in cinema too right it's because it's an unfair categorization and it keeps happening over and over and over again you know who's played a pretty well-written atheist jody fucking foster in the movie oh, contact. contact man yeah 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 you want to see scene you want to see scene how about a movie written by the an, an arch atheist uh-huh that holds that holds to his book's ideals Anyway. How about a movie starring Jodie Foster on screen with Matthew McConaughey? McConaughey. Oh, uh-huh. there's, the, there's your connection. There's your connection. <laughs> yep. Young Russ Cole before he joined the police force. He was a <laughs> traveling scientist preacher man. Yeah, pretty much. All uh, right, uh, let's go to the last email here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gabe says, I wanted to write to see if anyone else picked up on another recurring uh, one-eyed face. We've seen polar bears, stuffed animals, and people with missing eyes. However, this one went unnoticed by myself until my wife pointed it out last week when we were watching. I know this sounds crazy, but if you squint your eyes while looking at the Alaska police patch on the shoulder of Danvers or her team, the patch vaguely resembles a face with a missing eye. Is this another one that I put because I'm just getting an enormous volume of this uh, from like week two and I keep on like, your guys are crazy. I'm not seeing it. Two things. I got tired of like everyone writing it in, so I'm acknowledging it. And the other thing is I noticed for the first time that smiley face, it's the patch on the shoulder. It's got a winking eye that looks like it's missing an eye. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, at this point, it's missing eyes all the way down. So you guys might be fucking right. This Alaskan police patch might look kind of like a skull with a missing eye is what I was most commonly it's like a death's head with one eye missing and so all these I don't see burned it. out eyes are the left side like Lund and Otis and the except the for Holden who covers his right that's the one exception uh, yeah in this whole fucking deal is Holden covering but, and the woman uh, at the the wake or whatever it was for the baby her right eye oh, was, it was on the wrong 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 side too yeah um, but there you go. So. There's your there's your one-eyed theory rundown for the week. Mm-hmm. True Detective Baldmove.com is how you can tell us uh about the Atlove Pass and the one uh the one-eyed patches and anything else you want to talk about. Uh True Detective Baldmove.com. Follow us on all social medias at Baldmove. And again, if you're looking for ad-free feeds and extra features like the instant take, instant talk podcast, which again, we're not doing this weekend. But we will be doing for the finale. You know you want in on that. You know we need your support. Support.baldmove.com. 
uh, to, 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 to put a little, put a little something in the basket. That's it for this week. Can't wait to talk about, uh, the, uh, this, this next penultimate episode on Tuesday and it's regularly scheduled for the full podcast. Until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya. <laughs>